Again, this morning we uh, continue our September little three-part series on communion as we anticipate changing over to regular communion in October, regular weekly communion service. Last week we considered uh, communion from Jesus' own words in Matthew 26, how communion is a covenant ordinance of Christ. And this week we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 17, and communion, a fellowship in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, reading through verse 17. Uh, but let me encourage you to keep your Bible open. We're going to jump around the chapter just a little bit and look at some different verses too. But 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14 Hear now the reading of God's inerrant word. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And may God now add his blessing to our reading and the preaching of his word this morning. One of the things that caused the most division in the Protestant Reformation uh, was exactly what we consider this morning. That is the nature of communion. It is heartbreaking to look back at church history and see how uh, heroes of mine like Martin Luther and uh, the men that went with him, Philip Melanchthon and others, uh, made a good start of the Reformation. Uh, but uh, as the Protestant Reformation went on, it became clear that there was a division happening. Uh, and that division led to the division we know today as uh, the division between what we might call Lutherans, although they may not embrace that name quite so much, uh, and the Reformed camp. The Lutheran camp that came out of places like Germany and Eastern Europe and Scandinavia, and then the Reformed camp that came out of places like France and Switzerland uh, and the British Isles as well. One of the things that most severely broke apart the Protestant Reformation was this question of what is communion? Martin Luther, in his uh, very Martin Luthery way, uh, was bombastic that Jesus said, this is my body, therefore when you eat that bread, it is the body of Christ. It is the physical body of Jesus somewhere in there. He, he corrected the uh, Roman Catholic misunderstanding and perversion of the sacrament that said that it was all the physical body, that the bread in effect had ceased to exist. That is still today the teaching of the Church of Rome regarding uh, the Eucharist. They say that as soon as the priest says the magic words and pronounces it over the uh, Eucharist, the bread ceases to exist. It is no longer bread. It looks like bread, and it tastes like bread, and it feels like bread, but it is, in fact, now the body and the bones and the deity of Jesus Christ himself. And Martin Luther looked at that and said, no, 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 that's, that's clearly wrong. But he could not get over that phrase of Jesus, this is my body. He said, in some way, I don't understand how, but maybe it's under the bread and around the bread. It's beside the bread, but somewhere in there, the physical body of Jesus must be. And the Reformed camp, I think rightly, uh, looked at that and said, Luther, I think there's a better way to think about that. I think we can maybe make more sense of God's word than uh, just that simplistic, reductionistic approach that you've taken. And it split 
what are now known as the Reformed camps and the Lutherans apart, and we were no longer able to present a united front of the Protestant Reformation. Now, I love uh, Lutherans. Uh, they're some of my favorite people. Uh, in fact, when we go up to Chicago, there are not a lot of good Presbyterian churches in Chicago. So many times, Olivia and I will go worship with a good Missouri Synod Lutheran church. Uh, but uh, they will even say, right, if you don't agree with us about what is taking place at communion, please don't come, right? And we'll respect their, their view and their opinion. We don't come. We don't go take communion. Uh, but, but there is that division that takes place still remaining today. But it all comes back to that question. What is really happening here? What is happening when you and I come to, it's not here today, but uh, we would have the table out front. What is happening when that bread is broken and that, that wine and those cups is, is drank? What is taking place at the Lord's table? Maybe if you grew up in a Baptist context, I did not grow up in a Baptist context, but I did uh, go to a Baptist church when I was first a Christian. Uh, maybe you were taught that uh, communion is where you sort of think really hard about Jesus and you eat the bread to sort of trigger that mindset and you drink the cup. Welches, it's not wine in a Baptist church, right? You drink the Welches. And it triggers that thinking of, oh, this is like Jesus. It's a memorial, right? But when we come to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, we read that something much more profound is taking place at the Lord's table. Paul says that when you and I share in the broken bread, when you and I share in the cup of communion, we are in fact partaking of Christ himself. In some way, you and I, when we come to the table, we are sharing in and fellowshipping with Jesus. Paul said, verse 16, that the cup of blessing that we bless is the communion, the sharing, the fellowship of the blood of Christ. And the bread we break is the communion or sharing or fellowship of the body of Christ. Something more profound happens when you and I come to the Lord's table. That's ultimately the reason why we would even do something like transition to a weekly communion service. If it is nothing more than a, a memorial, a simple sort of trigger to get our minds going, thinking about Jesus more, then we could probably do it just once a year, right? We, we do Christmas once a year. We celebrate Easter once a year. We don't feel the need to do those more often than once a year. Uh, so maybe we would just do communion once a year. But if something is really happening to me, and if God is really working in my heart at the Lord's table, and if at the Lord's table we are really sharing in Christ, then it gives us all the reason to come as often as we can. What happens in the Lord's Supper? In the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that believers are united to Christ, sharing in his body and blood. When you and I eat the bread and drink the cup, we, by faith, are united to Christ as we share in his body and in his blood. How does that happen? Well, in some ways, uh, I will simply take my, uh, take my cues from John Calvin. John Calvin usually gets a rap, a bad rap, as being sort of a nerdy reformer. He's kind of the, the logistical thinker. He's the guy that uh, was not nearly as interesting as guys like Martin Luther uh, and much more uh, sort of 
uh, logical and, and academic. But even John Calvin, when he came to the question of the Lord's Supper in uh, his Institutes Book 4, he said, if anyone should ask me how this communion takes place, this communion between the believer and the Savior, partaking of Jesus Christ by faith, if anyone should ask me how this takes place, Calvin himself says, I'm not ashamed to say that this is a secret too lofty for my mind. Too lofty for my words to declare. To speak plainly, Calvin says, I experience rather than understand it. I experience it rather than understand it. In other words, I agree with Calvin here that what he's saying is when we come to the Lord's table, somehow, in some way, we are partaking of Jesus Christ. Don't ask me how it happens. I only know that it happens. I know that at the Lord's table, I eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And yet he remains physically in heaven. But I don't know how it happens, nor do I need to. I was having a conversation with a brother uh, just yesterday about this sort of comical thing that we do where we come up against things we cannot seem to understand and we think, therefore, they cannot be true, right? If I can't understand something, uh, I was sharing about a conversation I once had with a Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in the Trinity. They don't believe that Jesus is both God and man. They think he's a creature. They think he's the first creation of Jehovah God. And I was once talking with a, a relatively nice Jehovah's Witness woman who, who was talking about the Trinity. And she said, I just can't understand that. Okay. So what? I can't understand that. Therefore, it must not be true. Well, wait a minute. Who made your brain and your comprehension and your understanding the final arbiter of truth? Where did you ever get the idea, human, little tiny speck on a little blue ball floating through an infinitely vast universe? Where did you ever get the idea that your comprehension and your ability to understand was the boundary of truth? That's why I love what Calvin says. He says, I don't understand how this happens, but I don't need to understand how to know that it happens. I don't understand how I can eat the body of Jesus and drink his blood, even though his physical body remains in heaven and never comes down. I don't know how that happens, but I do know that it happens. Christ's human body, his human nature, is currently in heaven. There is no question about that biblically. It's why I have to reject even the Lutheran view of communion. Because any view that would say that the physical human nature of Jesus Christ comes back down from heaven at the Lord's table, uh, it makes a mockery of the clear teaching of God's word. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus ascends back into heaven in his body, in his physical human nature. He's taken up in a cloud and the apostles looking up see him go. And then the Bible says that two angels are standing by and they talk to the apostles, they talk to the disciples, they say, why are you looking up into heaven? Don't you know he's going to come back in the same manner? Not when the priest says the magic words at the communion table, not when the pastor pronounces the words of institution. He's going to come back bodily, physically, at the second coming. When he comes with all of his saints to judge the living and the dead. That's when Christ physically comes again. So there's no question that Jesus physically is not present at the table. But that's different than asking, is he really 
present at the table. You and I have so bought into this uh, sort of modernistic, humanistic, rationalistic worldview where we think that all reality boils down to what we can touch and smell and taste and see. Even if we profess to believe in sort of the invisible things of God, the unseen eternal things of God, we say it with our mouths, but let's be honest, do we really live as if it were true? We live as if the things that really mattered were the things I can touch and smell and taste and see and hear. The things I can experience with my senses are the things that really matter. And if something is not physical, therefore, it must not be real. But Jesus is really present at the table. He is really present right now. He's present in the pews with you. Thank God he's present up here in the pulpit with me this morning. He's really present. You say, Pastor Keith, I can't see him. And I say, I know. I know you can't see him. You can't reach out and touch him the way that Thomas reached out and touched him. But he's here nonetheless. Through his Holy Spirit. Through his Holy Spirit who now lives in the church. Embodies you, church, as the temple of Christ. He is present. Jesus said, wherever two or three gather together in my name, there I am with them. Not physically, but really. Through the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke about this in John chapter 14 and 16. Let me ask you to turn over there just for a moment as we consider a couple verses. John, go to John chapter 14 um, real quick. Just a few books back from 1 Corinthians. Look at John 14 and verse 23. John 14 is in the middle of what's called the upper room discourse. This is Jesus uh, where he washes his disciples' feet and he gives them sort of his final teachings before his betrayal and his crucifixion the following day. And in John 14, verse 23, Judas, verse 22, not Iscariot, the other Judas in his apostolic band, Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, me and the Father, will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus says, I'm going to come live with you. I'm going to come make my home with you, and so is the Father. How, Jesus? Look at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. How is it that Jesus is speaking to you right now through the voice of this insufficient preacher? How is it that Jesus is currently with you in the pews right now, worshiping the Father together with you? Not physically, but through his Holy Spirit, he is really here. He's present in your home, Christian. He lives inside of you. He lives in your heart. He's taken up residence in your life. Not by some kind of weird physical metamorphosis where he physically comes and sort of takes up residence in your body. I don't even know what that would look like. But through his Holy Spirit, he really lives inside of you. That's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. The, the, the very word Christian means little Christ. It means that Jesus so lives in your life that he is breaking out through you. He lives in your heart. He's taken up residence in your soul. He's claimed it as his own. 
And now, through his Holy Spirit, he's changing your life so that you start living more like him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And he does it through his Holy Spirit. Again, what does that look like? Can we fully understand what that really means? Or how the Holy Spirit can take up residence in my heart? I'll simply fall back on Calvin's words. I experience it rather than understand it. I don't fully understand how the Holy Spirit makes Jesus alive in my heart today. But it's true because God has spoken it and said it will be true. Now, if that's true, not just in our lives, but especially at the Lord's table, if it is true that when we come and partake of the body and blood of Jesus, he's really there present among us and we're really feeding our souls on him, then there are some implications. One of the implications that Paul gives uh, to the Corinthians is that they have to exclusively feast on Jesus. They have to exclusively feast at his table and no other table. Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, uh, was a long-standing city. It's been around by the time of Paul's writing here. It's been around for almost 800 years, maybe even close to 900 years at this point. It's a very old city, very well established. It's at, you know right on the northern part of a little peninsula in southern Greece. It's at a crossroads of trade and commerce. It's very popular. In Paul's times, it's a Roman colony. It's probably got upwards of 200,000 people in it, which might not sound like a lot, but in the ancient world, that's a very, very large city. 200,000 people is a lot of people. And Corinth was also a very immoral place. It was a place where uh, they had lots of temples to lots of false gods. You could you know, kind of have your pick of the litter. What god do you want to worship? You could go to any one. The greatest temple in the city was dedicated to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love and lust and beauty. She is also, not to get crass, but she is the patron goddess of prostitution. In case you needed a patron goddess for that trade, apparently you do. You can imagine that. Corinth is not a godly city. Corinth is not a place where it is easy to be a Christian. You and I live in a culture today, as much as you might not feel like it, it is relatively easy to be a Christian in this country. We don't have all kinds of other false religions being sort of the public accepted norm, at least not yet, not the way that you would, for example, in Saudi Arabia or in India. We have sort of the Christian uh, cultural trappings still left over from our days when we were a more faithful nation. No one is kicking our doors into this church building this morning. No one's hauling me off to jail for preaching the gospel to you. You can pray in the name of Jesus, and no one is going to bat an eyelash. They might make fun of you, but that's probably the worst of it. Now, that might be changing in our future, but at least right now, it is relatively easy to be a follower of Christ in this country. Corinth, it was not easy. It was difficult. You were surrounded by idolatry everywhere you went. We talked today about food deserts, uh, places where uh, access to fresh, healthy food is not uh, sort of readily available. Uh, places where, you know, you live in a 12-square-block area and there's nothing but junk food available for you to buy. Gas station, convenience store type stuff. You know, grocery stores, you can go get good vegetables. Corinth was a spiritual food desert. There's very little for you to partake on and feed your Christian soul with. 
And the problem, one of the problems that the Corinthian Christians were having is they were being tempted with those things and they were succumbing to them. In fact, by some very great trick of Satan the deceiver, they thought it was actually good to feast at both the Lord's table and all of the tables of these false gods in Corinth. Look with me, if you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 10, look down at verse 18. Paul reminds the Corinthians, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. See, the Corinthians thought that they were very spiritually wise, and they sort of had this idea, man, we are saved, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, therefore, ultimately, we can't really do wrong. Right? Uh, we know that those idols are not real gods. We know that the sacrifices that are made to them are not really being received by true gods. So, we can go share in those sacrifices and participate in those idol feasts because we know better, right? We know that it's not real. We know that there's only one true God. So we can go eat at all the idol feasts and we can go to all the other God's tables and we can know that at the Lord's table we really come to the one true God. Paul says, no, no, you don't understand. Yes, it's true. There is no real God behind the false idols of Corinth, but there is something demonic behind them. That's what he means in verse 20 when he said, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. See, if at the Lord's table I'm fellowshipping with Christ, Paul's argument is, if I go to anyone else's table, I'm fellowshipping with them too. And even if there's not a real God behind Aphrodite, even if there is no real God of, of Venus or Jupiter, even if there is no real God of Hades or Neptune, the reality is that there is a demonic power behind those things. And Paul says, I don't want you fellowshipping with the demonic. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Paul says, yes, I understand. Idols aren't real. You and I know that when you go into a mosque, you don't have to be superstitious and think that somehow uh, there is some kind of God behind the mosque who is going to destroy you if you don't bow down just right. Or if you go to India on a trip, for example, you don't have to be superstitious the way that they are and fear that these false idols can actually do something to you. They can't. They're false idols. But Paul's argument is there is a spiritual reality behind them. And it's not something that Christians can partake of. Christ will not share his glory with idols, Christian. Christ will not share your heart with any other entity. He wants exclusive access. He wants soul rights and privileges to your life, not to be shared with any other God. Light cannot coexist with darkness. One will inevitably drive the other out. Nora and I were sitting up last night before she went to bed, and we were looking out of the window of our front, front of our house, and the thunderstorm was coming through, and it was very dark. And she was asking me, Daddy, where's the moon? Well, you can't see it right now. The clouds have so covered it that you cannot see the moon tonight. The reality, friends, is that one will win out. Light or darkness will win out in your life. 
So when we come to the Lord's table, what we are saying is that we want Christ in our life. And we are professing by faith that we won't share our hearts with anyone else. One has to drive out the other. Someone is going to win. Jesus is going to have control and rule of your life or someone else will. Maybe it's not a false idol in our day today. Maybe that's not an idol the way that uh, the Hindus have idols or the ancient pagans had idols. Maybe it's the idol of money. Maybe it's the idol of success or your career. Maybe it's the idol of family. Maybe it's the idol of your children. There are many people that I have met in South Charlotte and in Union County who have made idols of their children. They live and die by their children's happiness and their children's success. Maybe we've made idols of entertainment. Maybe we've made an idol of sex or a certain substance that we're abusing. Friends, Jesus wants the whole thing. He's not willing to share. When you and I come to the Lord's table and we partake of Christ by faith, when we feed on his body and blood, what we are professing is that we want him to fill us completely. And we cannot come if we're wanting to him, him to share that space with any other. So believers must exclusively feast at the Lord's table and the table of no one else. And good things result when we do this. Look with me again at verse 17. Paul says, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. When you and I come to the Lord's table, we don't just share in Christ, but through Christ we share in each other. We don't just come and be united to Christ. We are united to each other through Christ. There is a union that you and I have with the Savior that of necessity attaches us to every part of his body. The common Western, especially American notion that you can have a relationship with God and not a relationship with the church is erroneous. I would even go so far as to say it probably has demonic inspiration behind it. Because biblically, you cannot be connected to Christ without being connected to his body. You cannot love Christ and not love his bride. I have said it before. I will say it again now. If any one of you or anyone I've ever met would come to me and say, Keith, I really like you, but I just can't stand your wife. Can we have a relationship separate from her? The answer universally all the time is no. If you want to know me and have a relationship with me, you're going to have to deal with my wife. You're not going to have any kind of relationship with me apart from a relationship with my wife. And in fact, if you came to me and said, Keith, I just want you and not Olivia, I'd say, well, you're not even getting me then. And friends, it's the same way with Jesus. If that's true for me, a fallen man, a, a man still prone to sin, how much more with the sinless Savior who has perfect love for his wife? You cannot have a relationship with God. You cannot have a relationship with Christ apart from a relationship with his body. Paul says, we, although many, we are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. There's a reason that we all eat bread from the same loaf. I know Olivia does a great job of slicing it up into little pre-cut pieces for us. It's all coming from the same loaf, though, and there's a reason for that. Because although we are different, 
We come from different backgrounds and circumstances. We have different lives and callings right now. There is one thing that unites us above everything else, and it is Christ. We are one bread and one body in Christ. And that unity must break down every other barrier. Nothing else is allowed to come between you and Christ's body. The same way that nothing would be allowed to come between you and your Savior. We're members not just of Christ, but of one another in Christ. Paul says this at the end of the book of Colossians. I'll not ask you to turn there, but simply uh, listen to these words that Paul gives us. The end of his letter to the Colossian church from chapter 3, Paul says, Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, neither circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Some of us root for different football teams. Some of us come from different states. We have different callings and careers. We even have different opinions about certain big worldview picture points. But Paul says that the greatest thing that unites us is Christ. It's one of the things that I found about the church when I became a Christian is that all of a sudden I felt this affinity for these people, some of whom I had barely even known yet, that I did not feel even with my own biological family. I came into the church and I said, I have an affinity for these people that goes beyond even what I feel towards my own biological family who don't know Christ. What is that? It's Jesus. It's the unity that we have together in Christ. And that unity is expressed and experienced when we all come to the one table of the Lord and we all come and partake of his one broken body and drink of his shed blood. That unity of God's people, it, it breaks down any barrier between us. Here at the Lord's table, here in the Lord's body, you and I have a bringing back together of humankind who, who cannot do it otherwise, right? We're all trying to unify today, right? There's all cries for unity in our culture today. Any one of them that is based on anything other than the unity that we can have in Christ will ultimately fail. Only Jesus can unite people. Only Jesus can bring back what sin has broken apart. And friends, this is the good news, that at the Lord's table, we taste that, we see that, we experience that. That's what happens at the communion table. You and I share in Christ, and we share in one another through him. Let me close with these words of Jesus from John chapter 6. Jesus gives us this promise that by faith, when we partake of him, which we do at the Lord's table, we also do it every time that we partake of Jesus by faith, but he uses this analogy to describe our faith. He, he describes faith as eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood. And no wonder that turned off many of his listeners. But this is what Jesus says to those who would come to him by faith. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. The one who eats this bread will live forever. 
Friends, by faith, if you have Christ, you have eternal life. You have everything that God wants for you in Him. You live in Him. You can die in Him. And Jesus says that at the last day, He will raise you up in Himself. This is what we have when we come to communion. This is the blessing of our fellowship in Christ. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, thank you for how you work. Thank you that you are so wise and so good. And Lord, thank you for your blessing. The blessing that it is to know you and the blessing that it is to experience Christ by faith. Lord, we ask that you would please work in our hearts today as we've heard your word with our ears. And Lord, as we look towards the month of October when we will regularly begin to uh, feed on your word with our mouths. Lord, we ask that in all things by faith, we would encounter Jesus Christ. And Lord, that as we encounter him, as we share in him and fellowship in him together, that we would not go away unchanged. Lord, help us, as Paul commanded, to flee from idolatry. Not just the idolatry of false religions, but the idolatry of our false ideals and our false aspirations. Lord, help us to flee from every idol and to flee only to the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, help us to find refuge in him alone, the church's only sure foundation. All these things we ask in his name. Amen.